Hi, I'm Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical advice and encouragement to help you with your writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find out about the Creative Writers Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 140 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. This episode is a conversation with development editor Amanda Rutter. We talk about what exactly a development editor does, how they can help you, the writer, and how to get the best out of your partnership with the development editor. And Amanda was in fact the development editor for my new book, The Centauri Survivors. And so I'll be using examples from my experience working on the book with Amanda to illustrate the advice and insight that we want to offer you. Amanda is based in Worcestershire in England. She's an associate literary agent with Red Sofa Literary and a former editor with Angry Robot. And she was the editor of Strange Chemistry, a YA imprint from Osprey Publishing. She has been a freelance editor for the past five years and she loves to knit and crochet. I had a fascinating conversation with Amanda and I hope it's helpful and inspiring to you. Here it is. So Amanda, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thank you. So I'd like to start with a question just about your background and your own personal history. What if you could tell us a little bit about the main cultural influences on you when you were growing up? Okay. Um, so I have been hugely lucky in uh, my parents in the fact that they've both been massive readers over their lives. They've bought hundreds of books. So right from a very early age, I was surrounded by stories and and deeply encouraged to pick them up. There yeah. was never any books that were off the table for me. If I expressed any curiosity, my parents would allow me to explore the book in question. And if I had questions afterwards to them, then I just had to go to them. So it meant that my reading expanded really quickly. Yeah. Um, the, the only thing I would say is that I did teach myself a lot, of, a lot of words, a lot of the words that came up. And so I had a whole heap of words that I mispronounced when I first said them aloud, <laughs> uh, which did cause a few hiccups at school when I referred to things like hyperboles and <laughs> things like that. So, yeah, yes, um, yeah. But, but in, in general terms, that's, that's the culture I grew up in was a culture of reading. And from a very, very early stage, I did veer towards fantasy. Okay. And I'm, I'm, talking, I'm talking even um, down to things like talking animals in some of my horse books, which I adored as a child. Um, Watership Down is still one of my very, very favorite books. Yeah. And, and I progressed naturally. Um, I didn't really go the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings route so much as okay. I was looking at uh, David Eddings, Tad Williams, Diana Wynne-Jones. That was my route into fantasy. Yeah, so, sure. Sure. Yeah, very much. Um, but that, that's, that's basically how I got to the position of being the, uh, the, the massive reader that I am now. <laughs> and I suppose what you've just said gives us a little bit of a clue as to why you're doing what you're doing now, aren't you? So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into editing. Uh, what sort of work have you done to, to get to the point where you are now? It's been a really circular route. It, it has been an odd one, I will say. I've been very lucky in that a lot of things fell into place just at the right time for me to take the steps forward. Uh, okay. I actually started, I started as a book blogger. Um, Floor to Ceiling Books is my now defunct blog. It's still there for people to have a look at, but that's where I got started. And 
I made a lot of connections in the publishing industry thanks to that, which meant that I encountered a man called Lee Harris, who is now the, um, I think, editorial director or, or some such of Tor.com Publishing. Yes. Um, he, was, he was working for Angry Robot at the time, and he asked me to do some slush reading for their Open Door month. And okay. A number of the novels that I picked, I think I, think I whittled it down from about 900 books to nine that I put forward and virtually wow. all of those were published so I think Lee thought I had a good eye at that point so yeah. when when they decided to open Strange Chemistry which was their young adult imprint they asked me if I wanted to come aboard as editor and this was this was a surprise and a delight but it was also nerve-wracking because literally on my first day I went okay so teach me editing and Mark and Lee bless them said you can't teach it it's something that you you learn, you, you, you do, and you, you work at it, and you work at it, and you work at it, and you pick things up. And gradually over time, you find that you have skills as an editor, or you find that you don't. <laughs> so that was, that was my training. Um, and since then, uh, that was, I think, eight years ago now or so, I right. have been, I've been editing pretty much on a full-time basis. So I've edited thousands of books at this point, and they've mm. been across all genres, uh, across different age ranges, things like that. And every, everyone brings its own challenge. And I, I'm, I think that I am now a far, far, far better editor than, than I ever was when I was working at Strange Chemistry. I would love to be able to take some of those books that I edited then and, and give them another go because mm, I think mm. that, that my range has improved, certainly, just as a writer's does. I mean, writers talk about levelling up and I think editors do too. Yeah, you you know some of my writing, and I I think that every time I write something, and I mean really really kind of put some hard work into it, I get a little bit better. But that doesn't you know that you don't get that for nothing. It doesn't come for nothing. You have to you have to put the work in. I think. So um, so what are you doing now? Then bring us up to date with with the kind of things that you get up to. So I'm freelancing at the moment for a number of clients. Um, this includes developmental editing copy editing and proofreading. Um, I work for Reedsy, which, as you know, is how we were first put in contact. Yes. Um, a company called Cornerstones, a company called Wising. I do proofreading for Angry Robot and Black Library. And I have um, a stable of clients now who have used me in the past and tend to come back to me in the first instance to see whether I can take on their work, which which I think is is the biggest compliment and editing mm, to get. Yeah. I mean, it's, if people are searching you out and you've, you've worked with them before, that is something must be going right. Must it there? I think. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I th- I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> now I know that one of the things that you did, that you mentioned just then was developmental editing and some people listening to this won't be completely sure what that is. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what that actually means. What is a developmental editor? What do they do? Sure. So a developmental editor comes in quite early in the process. The, the author will have wrapped up their, their, a number of first drafts. So, you know, you, you have your vomit draft, which is the one where you're just getting words out. And then you, <laughs> and then you have a succession of, of, of your own drafts. You might pull in um, beta readers at that point in order to, to get a flavor of what's working, what's not with a book. And it's around that time, just after that, that you would pull in a developmental editor because um, that basically is looking at the heavy lifting. These are the things where you might be making some really sweeping changes to your book. So we're, I'd be looking at things like 
whether the plot hangs together, whether the chapters are in the right order, whether um, key characters need to be there, whether they're pushing the plot forward. Have you got a beginning, a middle and an end to the book? You know, mm. these, these are really huge things that if, if they're not right now, the book, however well written it is, is probably not going to be as successful as it could be. So, so that's, that I would say is developmental editing, just, just to cover the others. Copy editing is smoothing out, um, the, smoothing out the prose, smoothing out the plot, making sure there's no further plot holes, um, continuity, making sure someone who's got green eyes at the beginning of the book doesn't have <laughs> blue eyes at the end of the book, names are right. Also, interestingly, um, I've had copy editors check phases of the moon, according to where, you know, if you've got dates in there or... Okay, check, yes, um, yeah. Check whether addresses are actual addresses or phone numbers are real phone numbers, things like that. So it's just going through and sort of shaking out all of the errors. And then the proofread is really the final wrap-up. That's when the last eyes go over it. So it, it, this, is, this is what kind of makes me a little bit frustrated when people say, oh, this book was littered with errors. I, I can't believe these got through. And I think to myself, well, there were so many eyes over that book if it went through the, the process I, I've said. You know, the, the author would have looked at it, the beta readers, the editor, who'd, the developmental editor, the copy editor, usually two proofreaders, and the author and the agent will have gone back over the book a couple of times themselves. So that's how many people that you have in the background looking at your your book when it goes to publication. Yeah, and there are occasional mistakes on there, even in traditionally published books. And I suspect this issue that you're talking about is more prevalent in self-published work. That is a challenge, I think, for for people who are self-publishing like me. It certainly can be. And, And that's why I say that even if you think to yourself, I've got a good eye or I've had an editor look at it or, or things like that. I do encourage the final proofread because that is the one yeah. it is, it's a silly superficial errors that people will flag up that, you know, rather than look at your story. And I, I don't think, I think that does a disservice to the author. You know, if you've paid out the money to get a decent cover on it, you've paid out for a developmental edit, the money for a proofread is, is worth its weight in gold really for that final kind of polish over the manuscript. Yeah, I, I completely would agree with that. I mean, I, I used a, I used a proofread. There's a, somebody I've used a couple of times with my books, and I mean, on both occasions, I have got it to the point where I thought, well, I think I've, you know, I think I've spotted most of the stuff that a proofreader would spot. But you don't, you don't. I think any, particularly if it's your own work, you get blind to those little errors. And so, I think a second, third pair of eyes is, is really useful. I wondered if we could start with developmental editing. What are there may be one or two main problems that you see in the ma- in manuscripts that you get. One of the main problems I get genuinely is where a manuscript is coming to me too early, where you, you read it and it's not polished to the degree that you would expect. So it, sometimes it hasn't been through a basic spell check. And I, I, I do think this is where authors are so excited and, and they want to <laughs> move forward. They want to move their work forward. They want someone yeah. else to look at it and, and to give their opinion on it. But it's not quite. It's not ready for a developmental edit. If I'm if I'm spending too much time looking at the nitty gritty of sentences and structures and trying to work out what's actually being said, it's then hard to pick up what's the, the sort the fundamental errors in yes. the manuscript or, yeah. or, or the things that could do with correcting. So I definitely say that another problem I get, for, especially from new writers as well, is overwriting. It can be overwriting in terms of the prose, and it can be overwriting in terms of the story. Like 
the latter is when they will throw all the plot points at it. You know, the kitchen sink goes in everything. Yeah. You know, they go yeah. on a quest. They've got 17 magic items to find. You know, they've, they're, they're now going into outer space for some reason that you can't quite fathom. So, you know, this, this, is, this for me is where a writer is, again, is probably so excited by all the ideas that they have that they think, these are so cool, I'm just going to put them all in. And actually their story would benefit greatly from scaling some of them back and, and just having a, a, more, a, a more structured, solid storyline in there. And then yes. those ideas can be for further books along the line. And then the overwriting in prose is, I guess, is the purple prose that we see sometimes, you know. Someone doesn't pick up a pen. First of all, we, we look at the room that they're in, and then we look at the pen glistening on, on the wooden nightstand. <laughs> and then the author paces across the room angrily, and then they pick up the pen and they contemplate life's mysteries as they do so. And you, you do sort of get that is, is where really they'd be best served by saying the character picked up the pen. That, that's all they did you know it's um it I, again I think it's them wanting to exercise their their writerly muscles they mm. they know mm. that they can write some lovely stuff and they they want to throw it all in but if you if you can scale that back again then you get a much stronger and more impactful story I find I think for new writers especially and I'm thinking back to when I first started and I, you know maybe I'm I could still be in this phase certainly at certain points I worry that if I write something too simply I certainly used to do this I, I would worry that if I wrote something too simply it would it would make me look naive or it would make it would just be too simplistic and mm. it is only more recently that I've realized that actually really, really well-written prose in one sense is quite simple. It doesn't need to be overloaded with adjectives and adverbs. It doesn't need to have all of that. And as you say, we don't need to have under the sea and in space and up a mountain and in the valley and the whole lot all all in the plot. We don't have to throw everything in. But I think that just comes with maturity and, and experience, doesn't it? I think it does. And the one thing I would say is it also comes with wider reading across <clears throat> different genres. Um, I do find some, some writers who are based in a particular genre, that's what they read. And it's good because then they, they find out what's, what the marketplace yeah. is buying. They find out what their peers are, you know, what kind of stories are selling, um, what stories have been done and what haven't. So it's really valuable. But what I'd say is even more valuable is picking up a thriller or some historical fiction, or romance, or a mystery, because they, they've mm. all got they've all got points, they've all got tropes, they've all got um, mannerisms of writing that I think really benefit an author to see. For instance, a, a huge thriller writer is Lee Child, mm. massive, and and he he will literally write a sentence like, um, "I took my coffee as I always took it, black and strong." And it's sentences like that. It's, it's so simple. And that's, that's the way that his, his books are written. But there's hooks at the end of chapters. There, there, there's ways that he, he draws you in, um, even with quite simplistic writing. And I think it would benefit any writer to see how well that is done. Because, mm. you know, he's right at the top of his game. He's, he's selling, <clears throat> you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of books. And so there's something in his writing that appeals to people. And if you can sort of capture that and bring it to your own writing a little bit you know consider what is working what what impact his sentences are making then I think that just makes for a stronger writer all round. So as we mentioned briefly earlier you helped me with the manuscript for the Centauri survivors and so I am going to take the slight risk of embarrassing myself by asking you to tell us all what the main problems with that manuscript were when you read it. 
actually with you, I had something far more specific than I usually get. When people approach me for developmental editing, they often don't have particular problems that they're already conscious of. They they want a an overview from me as to what what is working, what isn't. Um, you know, points okay. to yeah. Go. What I got from you was was actually very guided feedback on what what you were already conscious of, and I found that extre- extremely helpful when I was sort of framing my response to you, and certainly when I was going through, um, it, it targeted some of the things that that eventually came out as problems. I will say that your manuscript was much cleaner as well than a lot of the manuscripts that come across my desk, so it was. It was a pleasant experience to work on it because, <laughs> uh, well, purely because I didn't have to worry so much about um, whether your formatting was right or your speech marks and things like that, which okay. sometimes yes. I have to correct. So, so I will say to, to listeners that, honestly, everything that you can do to improve a manuscript before it gets to an editor, you're, you are saving them time and you are making your money go further in terms of what you're getting out of them because they're not correcting yeah. silly things or, or coming back. I think that's a really important point for people to pick up actually, that it really is worth us as writers getting our work as clean and as uh, just as put as much effort as we possibly can in before we before we come to a professional like you to help us. Honest, honestly, I would I would take the approach that you were going to the editor of a publishing house or to an agent that you wanted to right. submit to. Okay. Even if you even if you go in the self publishing route, I would I would take that attitude as an author. I mean, also take pride in your work. You want it to be as good as it can possibly be. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, you, you either are going self-publishing or you want to try the traditional publishing route. So honestly, the more professional you are, the, the more the other side of the table will appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it comes down to that. It's, for me, it's, it is professionalism. Anyone who's read a book will know. I, I'm not talking about whether you use um, for your speech marks, whether you've chosen to use single speech marks or double speech marks. That's, that's something which... It is is not uh, an issue at all. What I'm saying is that whether you've got your commas inside your speech marks and things like that, and whether you're indenting it or whether you're doing um, new paragraphs for dialogue, you know, this I, I will say dialogue is something that a lot of people um, aren't getting right in books. Um, and I'd just say read read more, see how it's formatted. Mm, mm. That's an interesting point, isn't it? It, it sounds like. Take a pride in your work. Read, read widely. Pay attention to how things are formatted. All of these are important things, aren't they? Yeah. So going back to your yep. manuscript, this, the the Centauri survivors. The main problems that I saw were switching in point of view and a, a slight, I'd say, um, a slight dissonance in what you thought you were writing in terms of what was being read by the editor, um, which I, I can expand on. Uh, shortly and also that the story took a while to get started and, okay. and that's you're not alone in that I will say that is that's yeah. also a common mistake I see is you know you, you you should start your story when the exciting stuff happens you know yes. you, you don't want to start your story and sort of work your way up to the exciting stuff and and when I say exciting stuff I'm not talking about a car chase right right off off the bat you know we're not talking this but 
an incident which hooks your readers in. It can be purely someone going into a coffee shop and having an encounter with another character, which is surprising. That is that is the sort of encounter that we're talking about, which yeah. you pick your readers in. Yeah. You know, we're not talking. This is this is where a lot of new writers will go, and they yawned in bed, they stretched, they got up, they you know, <laughs> they went and and had a shower, and and then they picked their clothes for the day. None of that is relevant. So it's no. a question of finding the point where your story actually begins. And you had. A, a couple of issues with that, which which I think we'll we'll go into, won't we? I think we will. I'm saying a couple of issues is probably you you kind of being being very sort of reasonable and modest, as it were, to me. Um, so yeah, I had I, I think it was twelve thousand words at the beginning of the manuscript that I just basically cut. And I think I wonder whether other writers find this, and I think they probably do because I I kind of knew I'd needed to do it, and one or two people had mentioned it. And then you said it as well. And I thought, I really, I really have to do this now. So there's about 12,000 words got cut from the start of that manuscript. Some of them found their way into, into the manuscript later on. But you know, what was chapter five became chapter one, whatever it was, something like that. So that to me was probably of the things, the three things that you've mentioned. That one was the one where I felt there was, I could see most specifically the solution and I, and this isn't just about me and my book. I think if you, people are listening to this, uh, as Amanda says, I think this is a this is a common problem where we kind of almost get in, we kind of warm up with a, with the story, and actually by the time we get started, we're on page thirty or forty or something, and and they have to go. My, I mean, my, I love my. I've said to people, my first chapter, which is completely gone, it's not in the book at all, and I loved it. I spent hours on it, and you know, I, it was an emotional moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> to get rid of it. I've still got it on, on my computer, but it had to go. It really did. It, it did. Um, I loved it too. And the one thing I will say is often, if you've got a finely crafted scene, which doesn't fit in your story anymore, if you're honest with yourself, you can always use that as a hook. If you're self-publishing, you can use it as um, a freebie that people can download yeah. and yeah, link to, to the main book in the back of it. Or if you go in traditional publishing, that's the kind of blog post which publishers may say, you know, what ideas have you got? And you say, well, actually, I've got a like a, a unseen scene, if you like. So, yes. you know, some, yeah. something that isn't in the book anymore, but fits fits with the story. It did. It was a, it was a really lovely scene. And it, it was it did start the novel well, but with all the extras that had to fit in after it, it meant yeah. it had to go yeah. with everything else. You know? It had to go. Um, one thing that you said, which I do want to pick up on, is yeah, sure. the fact that um, authors often do know. They they do know in their heart of hearts. They <laughs> they do realise what is wrong with you know when when it's mentioned. I don't think there's that much surprise. There might be a bit of a knee jerk. Oh, but I love it, as there was with you. But if you're honest yeah, with yourself, yeah. you, you already know that 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 needs taking out, or you know something else needs doing. Uh, so I'd say, you know, when authors do have that gut feeling, it is probably best to go with it. You know, yeah. it's something that you edit yourself anyway. You've got skills with editing often, authors do. So it's a case of just biting the bullet, I think. I mean, they talk about kill your darlings. I don't think that's, it's not, it's not the best phrase, but it, it, it sort of, <laughs> it does, it does, uh, 
it does sort of fit, I think. <laughs> it does. It's so it's it's a terrible phrase, but it's so apt, really. Yeah. It is. Um, and I suppose the consolation is, as as we've we've alluded to this, it, you don't actually kill them. You just kind of pop them away for for another time. And um, the other thing that that briefly came to mind, I mean, I, I very interesting what you said about perhaps using an, an unused chapter uh, as a hook or in a blog or whatever else. And um, I know some people who who listen to my podcast have have a, like a Patreon account. So no, I haven't got one, but certainly if I did have one, I'd be sticking that chapter in there for, for my patrons and saying, you know, like here's the director's cut or something like that. You, you could, you can see that chapter. So that was the first of the three things. Now, the other, one of the other things you mentioned was point of view, which for me personally, I mean, killing my darlings is bad enough, but point changing points of view and, and trying to manage points of views is something that I've struggled with in the past. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that, expand on that a little bit. Sure. Um, point of view can be, um, can be tricky. Uh, yours was very specific. I have had other issues where I, I have asked someone to rewrite a book from third person to first person um, be- simply because the story needed that immediacy. It needed yeah. The, yeah. the ability for the author to get inside the characters' heads. Um, so obviously you've got choices. You can write from first person, which we see a lot in young adult. Um, and curiously, you, obviously your book is um, more skewed towards young adults. So it's, it's, one of, it's one of those I've seen which isn't in first person. Um, so that, that of itself was interesting when, when, mm. we, when I started work on mm. it. First person uh, is great, it's, but it has its limits. You know, you, you can't... Yes. Whatever the character knows, that's all. You, you can't suddenly say what another character is thinking. That's true. And that actually yeah. does link to the issue that we had with your book. So it's such a slight difference, but it really makes for a jarring read if it's not quite achieved. So you can either have third person limited. So George R. R. Martin writes in third person limited, um, where each chapter is from a different uh, character's point of view. Yes. Um, you, you only really know what that character knows while you're in their thoughts, which is why he'll often write um, two scenes from opposing characters' views so that he can get the thoughts and reactions of different characters he can mm. represent that. Mm. And then you have third person omnis- omniscient, which is, I actually think it's one of the hardest ways to write a book because literally you, you, you have no limits. You know, you, you, you can state what... Um, Every character knows, but you can't get right to the to the heart of them. You can't get their thoughts in there, and and this is what what we were finding with you, with your book was that you were writing from third person what you thought was third person omniscient, but in in a in a scene with one character, you were referring to the thoughts and feelings of another character, and that is what what I refer to as head hopping. Mm. which mm. is very jarring when you read it. It's you, Suddenly you, you're reading it from the point of view of one character, third person, and then suddenly you know what another character is thinking. And it, it creates a just a, a slightly off feeling about the manuscript. And so when I was working through your book, it was a case of highlighting the points where you had drifted to another character while you were writing from, yeah. say, for, from... from uh, a particular character you'd already said what they were thinking and then you started saying what someone else was thinking so it was trying to identify and pinpoint where that was happening um, I think we covered it all in the end I, I when I read through it 
um, sort of had my final read through, I couldn't find many instances where that would happen. But certainly, um, if I were you, I'd be saying that to a copy editor or proofreader. You know, that's the kind of thing that if you are self-publishing or even traditional publishing, if you have a worry when it's going on to the next person that something hasn't quite been captured, let them know. Because as, yeah. as you did with me, it means that when I'm reading through, I can pay particular attention to that. I, I mean, I didn't really give an awful lot of thought to whether I should tell you or not, or what I should tell you or any of that. It, it just, it just kind of the idea popped into my head that like, Oh, these are the things I think might be, might be a problem. So I'll mention it to you. But I think on reflection, listening to what you've said, I think it's definitely a good, good idea for writers to do that. Um, I, I, and there will be other things as well. I mean, you, you, I expected you to pick up one or two other things, which you did as well. But I think maybe that comes back to the point that you made about that the, a writer in their heart knows when something's a little bit off. Absolutely. Now, the, other, the other thing that you said um, was when you kind of talked about a, a, a kind of dissonance in some of the prose, and I don't know whether that was to do with the point of view thing or whether there were some other some other things that you relates to that is that something that you want to talk about as well could you talk a little bit about that sure absolutely so your book is about a spaceship on its way to another planet that has been discovered um there are various parties on board with um different agendas and we first encounter them when some of the children are waking up from their cryo freezing and so part of the storyline of the book is to do with the power play and the politics between the various factions on board ship and when they go down to the planet itself. Um, this, this side of the book is kind of thriller-esque. There are some chase sequences. There's, there's even sort of horror moments where, where characters are, are suddenly at a door or, or, or behind another character. So this, this was, that was the flavour of one part of the book. The other flavour was the kind of fish out of water and discovery of a new planet, which covered flora, fauna, some alien species. It, and it, it was a very kind of, it was almost a gentle curiosity and some fear um, and, and just a, a survival quality about that aspect of the book. Mm, yeah. and, so, and so these two storylines, when I first read the book, were competing for um, dominance, shall we say. They weren't quite meshed. And that's what I meant when I said dissonance, because mm. um, it was, what I found was that the thriller aspect of the storyline was given more space on the page than it really justified in terms of some of the sequences were moving on a bit too long. The reader had already would have already grasped where you were going with some of yeah, the yeah. aha moments. Um, there was a lot of <laughs> argument about whether the characters should go and attack them or stay where they were or go somewhere else. And so you had a lot of scenes which felt as though there wasn't a lot of movement forward in the plot line. And then on the other side of things, you had, this, you had some really lovely scenes where they were discovering the alien life forms. And certainly when they were, they were finding out that these aliens were... Um, well, on, on a scale of evolution much further up than they ever, ever expected. 
and they were they were really lovely especially a couple of chapters which came from the point of view of the aliens which were so um unusual in in their in the way they expressed their thoughts and the way that they looked on these people that had come into their land and what i thought was that you needed more of that latter storyline mm. you could mm. you could weave the storyline of the the um power politics and the chases and and the how the groups interacted with each other you could weave those better around the encounters which you know you you've got this opportunity you're on a completely alien planet and you, you know your imagination is 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 good enough that it's like go for it you know unleash that a little bit more and so that's what i wanted from you when you brought mm. back <clears throat> to me was that you would address the fact that there was too much of the former and not enough of the latter and and you got more of a balance in that after the edit I mean, it's interesting hearing you say all this, and obviously you had said this to me already, and I'm just reflecting in my mind on how I did that. And and it was, I guess, the, just the two two things that come to mind, which are very, very simple, sort of blunt things almost. One was <clears throat> I, I knew that I had to pay attention to what you were saying, and I knew that I had to do that. So I had it, and it but it was actually quite difficult to do that. And I think when... This is just a reflection as as a writer. When when an editor says something quite specific, like for example, when you if you say that that first chapter's got to go, and here's why, then emotional though that is, it can just go. But when when you have to adjust the balance of a story, that I think really takes quite a lot of of thought. Well, it, it did for me anyway. And creating all of that stuff in in the world that I created. I, I felt like that was a lot of hard work. I had to keep coming back to it again and again, just to kind of add an extra layer onto it. But I knew I had to do it. And I suppose that's, that's the message. That's the core message. Probably one of the core messages from our conversation, I think for people who are listening to this is, is you, when, when you go to a professional and they say, this is what you need to do, you kind of just have to do it really, unless you can think of a really good reason not to. Um, and- that that actually is a crucial point, though, um, and I do want to bring that up because yeah. although I although I agree with you in that if you are paying someone to look at your or, or even if you're um, going traditional publishing and you've got an editor in a house that's looking at your book, they will make suggestions. Some of them will be great, and you'll be like, "Why did I not come up with that myself?" Even you know, yeah. or yeah. How, how did I not even see that? Some of them you will want to push back on because you will look at it and go that's not the vision of my book or I don't feel that that's reflective of that character or there will be things I would say obviously you don't argue with your editor for the sake of it but when all is said and done it is your book and it is your baby and you have to be comfortable with putting it out into the world so you know it's it's a case of yes pay pay every attention to what your editor has, has written in your report and and through the manuscript but also be conscious that if if one of the um, suggestions really sits badly with you, and again, it's usually gut feeling, go with that because it's your book. Yeah, and that's a, that's a, I guess that it's in the end, partic- or particularly for uh, independent authors, it's really down to the writer in the end to take or leave whatever that is said to them. Um, I suppose, I guess perhaps the distinction is you step back and try and be objective and you hear what the editor is saying. And when you think about it, it makes sense and you can see how it's improving the work. Um, and if you can get to that point, even if it's hard work, even if it's, you know, oh, I love that scene and all the rest of it, then I think you've got to go with it. If you just, 
if it's taking something away, as you say, from, from the heart of the story or the life of your vision, if it's taking something away from your vision as a writer, then I think you, you need to, if, if, it, if you're in my position, you just, you, you don't do that thing. I guess if, if you're working with a traditional publisher, the, the, the kind of balance is slightly different. You'd have to really argue your point probably. Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd certainly have a discussion editor, but they should also be open to the fact that, you know, you, you've got genuine concerns. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, now, one thing I did want to ask you about is diversity in the characters. So, again, we, we're kind of, we're skating around spoilers a little bit with, with, with what we're saying here, but which, is, which is fine. Um, but I obviously, so in, in my story, I've uh, got a... a one of my characters is a person of color. One's got a Han Chinese background. Uh, some are male, some are female. There's a mix of, of ethnicity and sexual orientation and, and gender in there. But this whole issue of diversity is massive at the moment, certainly in, certainly in the, the genres that I'm interested in, so, so, so the, all the kind of fantastic genres, and it probably is in the other genres as well. What advice would you give on this subject to, to writers when they, when they, when probably in any genre, when they're, when they're thinking about particularly the characters that they want to write about. Okay. Uh, the first thing I'd say is that it, it is, it is a massive subject at the moment and we are still feeling our way through it. So yeah. what I say is what I've observed, um, some of which may well be wrong and I need teaching, um, because that's one of the things that, that, it comes down to is that we need to learn from the people of color and the people from diverse backgrounds, ethnicity, uh, gender, uh, sexual orientation. We, we need to learn from them and we need to allow yeah. them to tell their stories. That's, that to me is crucial. That's, that's something which we're seeing at the moment is that say a white female YA author writes about a Chinese flavored fantasy story. They might've done their research. They might have put a lot of, thought into it they might have even asked people of that background yeah but what what people are saying at the moment is that it's not so much the fact that that white author may be getting it wrong although that's that is another another side of the the issue what they're saying is that instead of that white author telling that story why are we not finding the chinese person to tell that story if you yes. see what i mean yeah. it's yeah. like it's yeah. like publishing at the moment is so heavily white middle class it's it's got such a, a a focus on on those those backgrounds that um it seems almost automatic to go okay well you know they've written this lovely and and, the, and these books can be truly great they can be really really great fantasy books but why couldn't they have had why couldn't they have found a chinese author who is writing who has written a really 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 great fantasy book so that's one side of things the issue that you're talking about with your particular book is an issue that I didn't find at all. And the reason I say that is because your, your book was reflective of society. You know, if we send a number of members of society, our world up into space to colonize another planet, mm. they're not all going to be white. They're not all going to be straight. They're not all going to be women or men, you know, they're all, yeah, all yeah. somewhere in between. You know, they're, they're not all going to be of one kind. You, you would send, say, whoever was best at horticulture, whether that person is a black person or a Chinese person. So when you say that you had, you know, a person of color as a character and a Han Chinese, I actually found that more authentic in terms of your story because it, it meant that we were reflecting society as a whole, you know. 
Um, yeah, well, that's, that's good to hear. I mean, that's yeah. what I was trying to do with, I, I'm very conscious with this, that, it, that as you've said, um, a, if, you took a, if you took a bunch of people and you sent them off to another planet and you, in any way you want them to be properly representative of, of the people on this planet, then they have to be diverse. I think they have, they have, there has to be that mix. Yeah, 100%. And the thing is, as well, is you also didn't fall into the trap of, say, killing off the only gay character, which is something which pe- people still seem to do, you know, that is it, all the way from when we watched Josh Whedon kill off gay characters in Buffy, you know, it's, it, it's, it seems like that's been something that's happened in the past. Mm. If you avoid those sort of tropes and also you avoid the idea that the, their only story is that they're gay, and in this case, it wasn't. In fact, they weren't even sure whether they were gay, which as a teenager was also quite reflective. You know, it was, it was something which you looked at and you went, yeah, I can see that. You know, it's, they're, they're still exploring who they are. Um, so what I would say in terms of advice to, to give to authors who want to write outside their own culture is that, first of all, do, does it have to be in a different culture. I know we were tired of Western fantasy, say Western-based fantasy. Mm. Um, you know, there, there, there was such a swathe of it. But if your personal experience is of Western culture, you're embedded in it. If you tell a good enough story based in Western culture fantasy with, with, with a you know, sensitivity to some of the, trying to avoid some of the tropes which people have complained about, then that is so much better than you trying to shoehorn another culture into your book because you feel like you need to be more diverse Mm, mm. you know be conscious that there are writers out there who will be able to write their own cultures so much better than you ever could just by knowing whether someone would shake their hand when they walked into a room yeah yeah the fact that some people you know if you enter their dwelling you would have to take off your shoes and things like that you know i'm just pulling a few examples out but yeah. they know they know intimately the details whereas you've got to research them and then they don't have that same ring of authenticity so really consider how your story is set but don't stray away from diversity because that is the world we live in and you have to present a diverse cast of characters because you know we walk around and you will walk past black people you will walk past gay people and they they've got their own stories that don't just involve the color of their skin or who mm. they have sex with. Mm. Mm. no it's 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 really interesting listening to this actually and particularly interesting i think to hear what you have to say about maybe you know, if, if the story is good enough write write what you know i guess mm. it's almost like a surprise for me to hear that because i i had assumed that traditional western fantasy as a as a setting was almost pretty much a non-starter now if you it's only if you're approaching uh, you wanted to be traditionally published or you wanted to be you wanted to approach an agent that you won't get anywhere with that now but you know that is that is probably wrong if, if the story is good enough my, my perspective is that um i i have done literary agency work as well okay. and my perspective in terms of what editors buy is that there will always be even if there's 99 editors which go I don't ever want to see another vampire book as long as I live <laughs> there will be there will be one editor who goes I love vampire books why do we not still have them and yeah if, if your yeah. story is exceptionally written and you you are 
No, I, I wouldn't say you've bought something fresh and new to it because it doesn't even always have to be that. But if your story is entertaining, then often an editor will go, I want that on my list. You know, it's, it's, it's something to bear in mind. We don't always have to be finding the, the brand new or the, 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 the completely fresh because it's not always possible. No, it is interesting, is it? Because again, I, I, I would have assumed, and perhaps other people listening to this would assume that you do have to bring something new. But, but I wonder whether we writers underestimate just the weight that is placed on just the quality of the writing and the quality of the story. And, and it's just, it's almost like just write a great story, do it well. If you, if you consider the fact that they, they say this, there are no new stories. You know, story, stories yeah. have oral tradition, storytelling tradition, we're still basically retelling some of the classics. You know, we're still retelling yeah. Some yeah. things that happen in, in Shakespeare's in, in Shakespeare's plays. This is not um a deliberate retelling as some of the fairy tale retellings have been. This is this is taking an element of a story. So, mm. you know, in in Shakespeare, I mean the amount of times he had the whole um mix up in characters or someone yeah. who's in disguise and things like that yeah we, we bring those elements into our own stories people aren't going to be surprised by it who have encountered that storytelling before but if you write it beautifully then they're going to be invested in the characters in the yeah. world yeah you know I, i'd say plot is plot is important it, it is but if i don't care enough about your characters to want to read that plot then that you've you've sort of failed as a writer you know for me for me character is king you know why are you telling this story why should the readers care about this character what what is their arc what is their growth you know that's those are the important things for me yeah it's, uh, it's 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 really interesting just listening to these things because i I'm kind of nodding vigorously to to some of the things you're saying here because i i think that in many ways, we can't tell a new story. And, and even the way in which we tell stories, there is a good way to tell a story. And, and the great story, the really great stories have similar shapes to them. And that's not a coincidence. Um, and, and perhaps we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to, to face the fact that actually there are things like conflict, love, jealousy, passion, ambition, whatever, are, are, they're perennial. They're always going to be coming back again and again in some form or other. Precisely. They're universal. There's a reason people do still love Shakespeare. Yes. You know, he, yes. his plays are, are littered with exactly those points. So, mm. you know, it's, it's a case of, uh, of looking at, I think, at the, the themes and, and kind of the, 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 the big picture of what your manuscript is looking at. So I'm going to change tack a little bit now. So <laughs> you've, said, you've said that you've probably edited thousands of manuscripts now at this point. So yeah. I think you'd be in a really good position to answer this question. What should I do as your client, as, you, as the writer who's working with you, to really get the best out of the relationship? What, what does the good client, the good writer do? How do they engage with you? Okay, so so the fir- the first point is one we we've sort of talked about before, mm. which is to have have an idea about what you would like out of the relationship with your developmental editor. Um, what is it that you are worried about in your book? What is it that you need focus on? Is 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 there anything any sort of direction you can give your mm. editor to start mm. with? Also, it's to, it, even prior to that, really though, is 
you need to find the right editor to fit you. Um, I've, I say I've edited that many books. The majority of them have been in science fiction and fantasy. Um, yes. I, I have I have touched other genres. I've read other genres, but my my sort of comfort zone, if you like, the the area where I feel strongest and most knowledgeable is science fiction and fantasy. Sure. And so, when you're looking for your editor, you want to find someone who is in the right zone for your book. So, so I, I would say right from the off is do your research on who your editor is going to be. Mm. Um, try mm. and find out what what they've tackled in the past. If they if you've heard of any of their previous clients, things like that. Obviously, as, as we both know, on, on Readsy, I have to put a profile up which says who I've worked with, yes. what my experience has been, things like that. You can sort of, you, get, you can get a flavor of what I'm about. Um, don't hire an editor who is not going to empathize with your particular story. So don't get an adult editor to look at a young adult book. Don't get a historical fiction editor to look at a science fiction book. You know, the, yeah. the, it's, it might sound silly. You know, you might go, well, everyone would know that. But sometimes <laughs> a name will come up. <laughs> but sometimes people will go, oh, I know that name. So I want to work with them. If, yes. they don't fit, if they don't fit your book, it's not going to work for you. So that's the first case. And then obviously you need to work with your editor in terms of timescales, um, in terms of payment. When you are looking for your editor, you're going to need to have a discussion and it's going to have to be quite a frank discussion about both timescales and the money that you are willing to put down for the project. Yes. Um, I've had people come to me who have clearly not expected the amount that might be charged for um, a top-level developmental edit. You, you do have to be willing to put some money behind it if you've got yeah. a decent length manuscript. I will say that. Um, obviously, rates differ. Um, but once you've found the editor that fits your book, once you've sort of negotiated your way through uh, the timescales and the money and things like that, um, they're going to take your book for quite a long time. And one, one bit of advice I would say is don't nag them. <laughs> I, have had clients, I have had clients in the past who have sort of been on at me every couple of days, you know, have you reached that scene yet? Or oh, you, yeah, you, yeah. you might have something by this weekend or is it going to be next weekend? And honestly, that interrupts your flow for one thing. And it's frustrating because often you're not the only client that that editor is yes. dealing with. So just, yes. just be conscious of that element. Yeah, um, fair enough. When you, do get your, when you do get your editorial report back, this is when you need to become the sensitive client in terms of I know that your first thought will be I hate it they hate it where you know the <laughs> it's never going to go anywhere there's other you know there's red lines all the way through it I've got a 12 page report where do I even begin and honestly my best advice would be to put it put it, put it away maybe just get a gist of what what the editor has said and then put it away for a few days um, yeah. and then come back to it after that initial knee jerk I can't believe they didn't love it immediately <laughs> reaction has gone <laughs> because I've also had emails during that period where people have come back to me and said well you know nothing you know you, really? you, you, you obviously you obviously didn't grasp my vision but you know they get they get quite prima donna about it so um I'd say my best advice would be to just just have a little bit of time to grieve, mourn the fact that, you know, your book wasn't perfect first time. Sounds daft, but it is, it is something that I think authors should do. 
after you've done that, the best client then, you, usually you'll have a, an option of a phone call afterwards. You'll, you'll actually talk with your editor. And yes. if, if you haven't got that as part of the deal, then negotiate for it because uh, I can write the best report in the world. But if I don't, you know, I, I'll have trouble expressing myself sometimes, especially if some of the concepts are um, slightly more hazy, say, where it's like, well, it's sort of a problem, but, you know, it, it it's not really pinpointed enough in the report. Yeah, yeah. Get, get a phone call in place, a one-to-one, where you're able to talk through. And prior to that, have questions that you've got specifically for your editor and, and almost have a minuted meeting so that you can go through yes. exactly what you need to clarify, what questions you need to ask in order to take the edit forward. Because if there's anything that you're struggling with, then you, you, you know, there's no point you going away and trying to edit it. Um, it's, it's best just to, to get that covered up mm. by your editor. Mm. Now I, I would kind of, endorse that massively certainly like the phone call thing i would really encourage anyone who's listening to this who works with a developmental editor to get a phone call so i found it really useful to actually talk to you i mean the report was good because it gave me the kind of insights that i needed but to to, to what complemented it was to be able to talk to you and and to be able to just have some discussion about how i was going to approach some of the issues that you raised so i'd really encourage people to, to do that. So we're coming to the end of our, our chat now. And I wondered if there were any other particular issues that perhaps you see crop up that you, that you would mention or any, any other bits of advice that you'd have for, for people that want to use any editorial service really, but particularly developmental editing. Um, I think it's just sort of recapping some of the things that we've been through. So the first of which is, is for you personally as the author to read as widely as you can. Yes. And, and just get, get to a point where you are, ta- and, and I can't stress this enough, tackle other genres outside of your own. That, that for me is a huge bit of advice. I'm a better editor because of what I read and, and how much I read. And you will become a better writer by doing that. The other bit of advice definitely is to research your editor. There are a lot of, there are a lot of editors out there, freelance who will put up websites um, find testimonials get Mm. some information about what they've done find out if you can contact any of their previous clients any genuine editor will put you in touch with people uh, you know with with the other person's permission obviously they will yeah with people to say whether they've had value out of the experience when you are looking for your editor you find someone who is going to do the work that you want. Also, be really clear about what stage you're at. Some people have come to me and they've already had a developmental edit, so they're very clear that what they want from me is the next stage, so they want a copy edit or a proofread. So, you know, know know where you are in in the process. We've discussed this a little bit. So the earlier you are, it will be a developmental edit, but if you've already gone through that, don't get pushed into another developmental edit because that editor is looking for a little bit more money, say. A lot yeah. most editors wouldn't do that at all. No. But there will there will be the odd one that will. Okay. So just to finish then, Amanda, if people are interested in talking to you and maybe hiring you for one of the services that, that you've talked about here, how would they do that? I have a website um, which is AR Editorial Solutions that can be searched for and found via Google. It's areditorialsolutions.com. I welcome 
messages via Twitter in terms of finding my handle, which is at A.L. Rutter. Um, if you wanted to ask me a question, um, we could dive into private messages to discuss things. And then I've also got my uh, work email, which is Magemander. This is M-A-G-E-M-A-N-D-A at gmail.com. So this is, uh, this is a legacy email address and I really must change it at some point for my professional work. But um, that, if you wanted to inquire that way, then, then that would also be um, more than acceptable. Okay, so that, that email address is mage, M-A-G-E, Manda, M-A-N-D-A, at gmail.com. That's correct, yeah. Great. I'm kind of I'm kind of assuming from that, perhaps wrongly, that I know what character you'd be if we were playing D&D. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, may, you may be right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, thank you very much, Amanda. That's been really fascinating. And um, thank you for saying a few nice things about my manuscript as well as well it's been really interesting to just explore what some of those issues and i hope people listening to this will really find that useful so yeah thank you very much for your time and thank you for having me on it's it's been great to talk and it you have been one of those uh, ideal clients that we that we reference so it's it's a joy to work with you (laughs) that's very kind of you thanks very much that's brilliant thank you thanks very much indeed amanda cheers thank you bye 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 Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.